Yep, it's the Jeremy Webisodes Podcast. You're doing a great job. Here we go. You know, thanks, John. I feel like I'm doing a good job. I'm really, you know, I'm putting my and best hey, foot forward. Confidence is 99% of the whole thing. So right? as long as you feel like you're doing a good job, what could go wrong? I'm living in my own dream. What's <laughs> the 1%? Well, that's where you're blowing it. That's you. <laughs> I'm the one. You're the one percent, Josh. Wow. Okay. So, welcome to the show. Oh, that's a nice start. That's fun to have you and and Ryan. Good morning. You, as well. Oh, well, thanks. It's good to have you, uh, ladies and gentlemen. Thanks for being here. Uh, we are back in the lab. It is Wednesday, December 9th, two thousand and twenty, and this is in fact episode number twenty one. You know, I feel like after, you know, from here on out, it's gravy. We've worked out all the kinks. We're a well-oiled machine now. The lava lamp continuously burning brightly in the studio as a beacon, right? For all the lost souls in the world, may they find their way home. And I kind of clarified that a little last week when when, uh, Monterey was on the show. You know, I get it that the lava lamp isn't, like, necessarily the best beacon. Can't be seen (laughs) from that far away. But it's the symbology of the thing for me that really uh, is the, is why we do it. And so we keep it lit. Um, it's like the same reason Amish people have like the two candles in their window. Right. You ever see that? Sure. It's the same thing. It's, you know, it's a, it's, it's to let you know that our door is open for you. That's exactly, that's from the revolutionary war. If a candle was at the window, you were allowed to, to rest there for the night. And now it's the lava lamp. Right. So that's Can what, people sleep here. <laughs> sure, you do it all the time. <laughs> so one can. Yeah, I mean, we at least can can have you doing it. So, um, And we're also very excited, ladies and gentlemen, to have John Cavendish joining us once again tonight, yes. all the way from Nashville, Tennessee, via Zoom. Hello out there, all you webisites, webisodites, <laughs> webite, webites. We're going with nice. webites. It sounds Hello. very biblical, but kind yeah. of like in the bad guy. <laughs> like I think. Well, you know, you guys live on the margins, and so you you can take a little bit of the bad guy, uh, the bad guy look. It's okay. You leave the Jeremy webisodes, and while you're walking away, if you look back over your shoulder at us, you instantly turn into a pillar of salt. It's a, <laughs> it's a bummer. So that was a revel. That was a that revelations. Was, that, that was, was a, a revelation. That was the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. <laughs> Look it up. It's uh, hey, at least your steak won't be unseasoned. Yeah. yeah. So thanks for being back, John. Um, I thought uh, you know, uh, a little music was in order. The holidays are right around the corner, and so I thought uh, maybe we'd have you on and you could share. I know you've been working on a couple projects that are apropos for the season, and so I, I plan on getting into that a little bit. Later, but before we do that, we're going to do what we always do, and something that you and I have enjoyed doing for years together, as have we all here, uh, and that's drink booze. So um, let's do a little- I think it sounds sounds something like this. Boom. Boom. That was great. I'm going to get a cork pull on my end. Oh, Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. So what we're drinking tonight is, uh, now I know you're in Nashville, Tennessee, and last time you were on the show, we talked a little bit about Tennessee and the differences between it and Kentucky whiskey. But what we got tonight is a, is a good, just Kentucky straight bourbon whiskey um, 
47% uh, alcohol, 94 proof, made in good old Bardstown, Kentucky, right outside Louisville. A uh, lot of great distilleries in Bardstown. Louisville. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, we got the Willet uh, Private Reserve Pot Still Private Re- Reserve tonight. And uh, this one is bottle number uh, 20,016. 20,016. So, yes. Bottle number 20,016. You're not going to the glass? Uh, I am. I'm going to aim at the glass. <laughs> Jeremy almost missed by a foot. The, uh, it looks absolutely So what's cool about this one, ladies and gentlemen, and, and as always, I will post a picture on uh, Instagram so that you can see a picture of the bottle. Uh, the Jeremy Webisodes podcast on Instagram and Facebook. Go there. Find us. Be our friends. Let us know you're out there. Um, but I will post a picture of this one. And what's cool about this is the bottle is in a very special shape. And no, that is not a bong. I know. Seriously. Joss, it is uh, the shape of a pot still. Hey, but you could make a bong. I've seen it. it done. I'm not surprised. I've seen it done. Uh, uh, there's, a, there's a subreddit, Stoner Engineering, and uh, I've seen it on, on that subreddit. So it has been done. It would make a fantastic bong. It's a great shape. Shape of a pot still. Question one. Yeah. What the hell is a pot still? Okay. Is it a still? I mean, obviously it's not a still pot. Well, we've actually talked about it on the show, so it's good that you've been here now for (laughs) 21 episodes and you have no idea what a pot still is. Well, I'm pretty sure. a huge picture of one hanging on the wall right outside the office that you walk past every time you come in here. That pot still. Yeah, a pot still is a very, very traditional form of a distillation device. Um, In its simplest form, it's just a big copper pot. Um, And uh, so that's what it is. Now, you can see that there is some variation in this is this little part in the in the neck here is what they call the alembic um the alembic bubble sometimes it's called the alembic onion um and the reason that the copper that that, that it has this shape is so a a pot still in its simplest form is a pot you put your your ferment in there and you boil it and the alcohol is the first stuff that boils off so you can collect that and that's how you're separating your your alcohol and water I actually do a weekly YouTube show from uh, here at the distillery called Webb's Grainworks, G-R-A-I-N-W-O-R-K-S. And um, episode 13, I give an entire explanation of the process of distilling using a little uh, replica copper pot still. So check it out. The reason that it's shaped in that particular way is that you want the steam, the alcohol steam, to have as much contact with the copper as you possibly can. So that's why you have the fluting and the Olympic, the the onion and all that stuff, is you're creating as much surface area as you can to create as much copper contact as you can. Why? Why do you use copper? Well, that's because when you're fermenting, ferment the fermentation process, yeast adds sulfur into the product and copper is has a natural uh uh ability to pull sulfur out of stuff it pulls it 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 really reacts on a molecular level with acid and with sulfur and um so it's another one of those happy accidents is you can use any metal to create a still 
right? You can create, a, uh, uh, you know, uh, steel is another one that you see quite often. But what they were noticing is that the stuff coming out of the copper still tasted better. Didn't have a skunky aftertaste or smell. And it just had an overall sweeter nature. And so they just continued to use the copper one before they even really knew why. But simply because the product coming out of the copper was a, was a far better product and modern science finally catches up and explains to us that it is actually uh, bonding on a molecular level. In fact, when you uh, distill, a lot of times you'll find at the bottom of the still after the distillation, you'll find these big pieces of like bright blue like almost soapy substance floating around and that's uh, copper sulfate and literally the the copper has pulled the sulfur out of the distillate acid st uh, distilling and it creates sulfur soap um that floats around in in the what's in the low wine that's left in uh in the bottom of this the still after your after your runs so um that's why the bottle's shaped like that and that's why they use copper when uh when they're distilling that's the lesson for today well i'm dirty i need some soap can I try it? And I feel like low wine would give you a really terrible hangover. Right. It's it's definitely got the the stuff and the oils and all the the tails and all the stuff that gives you the hangover. So say, it's a gorgeous bottle. It's yeah, an absolutely beautiful, beautiful bottle. They spend a ton on it. Its nose is amazing. Like it is real nice. I spent about sixty bucks on this bottle. Um, the nose. Uh, you want to give it a couple? <sighs> Notes, what do you got, John? It's not super. It's not super boozy. No, it doesn't no. have a uh, that's oh. the, very. Uh, th that's what's our proof? Not a uh, ninety-six, hmm. which is a pretty high proof, but it yeah. doesn't have a super no. diesely nose. No, it doesn't have that just gasoline smell. Yeah, the nose. Um, mm, oh, it's wow! It's, it tastes great. Yeah, um, a little cherry. The nose. Okay, cherry is a good nose. On the website, they have vanilla lemon cake. Oh. Okay, which is the, you I'll know. take a piece of that. Yeah. Um, and then palate is all the ones that you, know, you always see. Uh, caramel, vanilla, spice, citrus. Um, it's super smooth. Again, for 96 yeah. proof, not not gasoline-y. No. That's always been the thing that surprised me most about I think of the of like the sort of mid fair to middle and high-end uh, uh, Kentucky bourbons that we can kind of get regularly, at least around here. This one is probably my favorite. So you're a fan uh, of Willie. You've had it before. Oh, um, man, I've drank a shitload of this stuff. Uh, it's just so easy to drink. I, I don't ever take it with rocks, which I usually, for you know your stronger Maker's Marky type sharp-edged bourbons, I usually take a, a rock or two in them. But this one, I just feel like you'd be ruining the smoothness. Again, this is another one. No way you can mix this with like club soda coke of course would it be good no would it be good the only one i thought of maybe it'd be good with how about an old fashioned yeah i mean i would well that's such a liquor centric drink yeah i would drink this with in an old fashioned or a, or a um that would be i think it would be great manhattan in old fashioned. or no yeah manhattan manhattan maybe is just not. so like i don't know it's like if i'm going to drink a manhattan I wouldn't drink a Manhattan. I don't want vermouth. If right. I'm going to drink a Manhattan, yeah. just give me the shot right. without the vermouth yeah. in it, you know? Um, it, but I'll drink an, an old-fashioned if I want a nice muddled drink made well that's got, you know, got some, that's fun. I'm not a big cocktail well, guy. Right. But Especially with the citrus notes that this exactly, already really has in exactly. it. That would really fit well, yeah. I could drink a heck of a 
uh, old fashioned out of this. I, the, That's a really good idea. We should definitely we'll send Simon to bartender school <laughs> so that he can just be our mixologist during the show for the next twenty episodes. That'd be fantastic. That'd Start be doing worth, some real mixology on. That'd be worth every dollar to put him through school. I mean, that'd be awesome. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, does, no, this is. Does a, he have a choice? This is a good one, and yeah, and not too overwhelm, not too overwhelmingly expensive. Yeah, no, for the for the quality and the 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 tier that it resides at, it's a really attainable whiskey. I think here in Tennessee that we've we've got the the big boy here, the leader in one point seven five, and it's only like I think I only paid eighty or eighty five bucks for it. You say you can have a hard time finding it though, because it's such a popular whiskey. Yeah, and this is such a whiskey town. So it's hard to find in a whiskey town, which is a great. What can you say yeah, that's a great, good. That's a yeah, yeah. testament to that. It's a it's a good yeah. one. Do you see it? Yep. Will yeah. I? What? Will I? Will it? Oh. Will you? Probably. Will yeah, probably. you? Would you like another? I think I, I, think I will. <laughs> um, okay. Well, uh, that's a tasty one. I'm mm-hmm. uh, I'm gonna continue to uh, drink that. But real quick, um, I've got a a question from a listener. Uh, this is uh, an old friend of ours from the show that um, we haven't heard from in a while, um, Mr. Feedback. Oh, boy. Now, uh, if you remember on the original iteration of the Jeremy Webisodes podcast, we used to do a weekly segment called Things We Got Wrong on Last Week's Show, and it was hosted by Mr. Feedback every week. And we haven't really heard from him much since we rebooted, um, but he's back, and he, he starts with a question. And his question is, uh, so my question, do they ever stir or jostle the barrels to speed up the mixing and to get new parts of the liquid to come in direct contact with the oak? And says, I've always been under the impression that once racked, the barrels are left more or less motionless. Um, okay, so the answer is, yes, they are moved. Yeah. Um, there is called a, like racking? Or? Well, there's a regular schedule for the movement of the barrels. And um, it's called, the word you're looking for is called clocking. Hmm. And so what you, what you want to do is on a barrel, there is a bung. And if you imagine a big, long rack, the bung, for anybody that doesn't know, is, is the cork, where there's, there's literally a hole in the side of every barrel, and that's how it's filled. And then a, a, a big cork or rubber bung is, is pounded into there with a hammer. And you don't want the bung hole mm-hmm. on the bottom. Because it'll leak, and nobody wants a leaky bunghole. That's true. (laughs) Very very accurate. I mean, I think if we've learned anything, we know that ain't nobody like a leaky bunghole. It kind (laughs) of starts there. So a big part of running a rickhouse is clocking barrels, because you can imagine when you're rolling barrels in 10, 15 feet deep into a barrel rack, once you get it to the point where it's going... You know these barrels. These yeah. are, you know, I, I forget what the what the weight of a barrel is. We could probably have somebody <laughs> Google it. Um, it's a shit. They're heavy. Yeah. So once it gets into place, you're not trying to muscle it around to get the bunghole up off the bottom. You want to make sure that when it finishes its rotation, the bunghole is up. So that's called clocking, and there's a real art to knowing. You know, there's this many rotations in the barrel before it gets to where it's going to land, and I got to make sure that the bunghole's on the top. It's around 520 pounds. So each barrel weighs about 520 pounds. Okay, so, but what they do is there's a regular schedule that, um, you know, the head distiller uh, or dist- or the master distiller will go through the rickhouse and they will clock all the barrels, which is essentially they'll roll them from one end of the rack to the other one. 
um, to kind of stir things up and to, you know, to uh, to get some of the, um, you know, the old, the oak that's sitting on the top to re-wet it because... Because um, not they're not 100% full. Right, they're not 100% full. And you lose some every year. And the parts that are dry are um, becoming uh, that much more porous than yeah. the parts that aren't. So they want to make sure that the the you know that the staves stay saturated and all of that, um, and then at the end of the rotation, you want to make sure that your bunghole is still on top. So there's a real art to moving the barrels around the rickhouse and maintaining you know a a, a, a leak proof bunghole. Yeah, I think. Uh, and I seem it, to it remember. Back, oh, sorry, it, go ahead. It goes back to um, you know really uh, the for a quality life, always take care of the bunghole first. Oh, I agree. I absolutely agree. I I never I, I I spend money on food, booze, and toilet paper. Those are the three quality things you need in your life. Everything else, you know. Do you use toilet paper and whiskey? I don't know what you're talking about. No. When I make it a Molotov, you you really can't take this conversation out of context. Yeah. What were you? You were about to say something, John. Oh, I was just remembered from my uh, my experience with touring distilleries in lovely, uh, uh, quaint Bardstown, Kentucky. Uh, they they move the barrels up and down around the rickhouse throughout the season too, especially I think a lot during the summer when it gets so much hotter at the top of the rickhouse and uh, uh, colder at the bo- cold, cooler at the bottom. There's some science to that. Absolutely, uh, there there's a, a complete rotation that takes place, and there are there's a science to not doing it. So we've talked mm, about that mm. before, and you having been on some of these distillery tours, you see some of these rickhouses are are huge. You know. 20, oh, yeah. 30, 50,000 square foot rickhouses. I mean, I'm, I'm just throwing out numbers, but they're, they're huge, easily that large. So, you know, one, of the Heaven Hill, one of the Heaven Hill ones had something like 36,000 barrels in it. Right, wow. right. And in those rickhouses, there's um, microclimates it, on, on this floor, on the eastern part of the building where it gets, you know, mm-hmm. this mm-hmm. part of the sun hits it during the day. It's hotter and, and there's more evaporation taking place. It's got a hu- more humid climate. Then on the bottom floor over here, it's colder. So there's microclimates within the individual rickhouse. And so, so there is a science behind rotating the barrels around so that they all get to, to experience all the individual microclimates. But there's also something to be said for not doing that so that different parts of your rickhouse create particular flavor notes in their barrels. Right. Um, and then that's where blending can come in. That's where single barrel can come in. You know, you're you're sourcing barrels from a particular part of the rickhouse that you know have, you know, for whatever reason, have developed a spicier note or a more cinnamon note or or whatever. And it all comes down to it's a little hotter over here and a little colder over here. I mean, and and you've been in some of those old rickhouses. I mean, some of them, you can see through the slats in the walls. I mean, there's breeze blowing through there and birds flying in and out. Drafty. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's not by any means like a... a Airtight. Airtight environment. That's fascinating. What what a science, you, I think you said, right? Yeah, and right. How true is that? And you're talking up to 30 plus thousand, 500 pound plus yeah. barrels. And, and there's then there's these little dudes, a little, most of them are old in Kentucky that have been doing this for a thousand years that have their little notebook. I mean, far before anybody had a PowerPoint system or a, a 
you know, a Excel. computer laptop or Excel or anything. I got a little ahead of myself. The internet tells me that there are between 18,000 and 22,000 barrels in a particular rickhouse, but that's still a yeah, shit. Yeah, yeah, still. Um, and, and, and there's a guy that's got his little notebook, and he's walking around, and he knows the last time every single one of them has been rotated. He tastes every one of them. You know what's really neat is they'll literally walk up to a barrel, and they'll take a Makita drill with a really small bit, and they'll drill right into the barrel, and then it just starts spitting out a little stream, and they'll stick their cup under it, and they'll look at the color, and they'll smell it, and then they take a little wooden dowel, and they just hammer it into the into the barrel. Um, so a lot of the barrels have all these little holes all around them um, with these little dowels in them, and uh, you're, you're constantly going back and, and having to do maintenance on those and to check and make sure your dowels are still in place and that those aren't leaking. And so you'll wax the dowel hole. <laughs> and uh, Bourbon is a single-use barrel, is that correct? correct? Yeah, that's what I thought. So, um, But it's very interesting, and there is. There, there's, it's a science. It's an art. And what's cool is it was an art before it was a science, before anybody had any idea why they were doing it. Yeah. They were doing it because it worked, and they just continued to repeat the process, and that's, that's what's so fascinating about it to me. If, if you're tasting 22,000 barrels, you're going to be you're going to spend a lot of your mornings pretty hungover. And again, that's why we have Simon. Right. Or someone like Simon. When Simon is eventually the guy running the still, he's going to need a Simon. Right. Simon and Simon. Right. It's a great show. I'm really a big fan. <laughs> um, that's a fun job, I bet. Right. I but mean, it's also very, it's intricate. I mean, right. you know, it's pretty dialed in. And you're, you're cataloging in your mind and in your palate all of these notes, and you're thinking, okay, up there, there that that line of barrels, they were all really cinnamony, and, and down here on this floor, these are all really vanilla and sweet. And so you're thinking in your head, you're thinking about the blend, and if you're trying to hit a consistent blend, when you have where you have a product that you want to taste the same every single time, you're constantly cataloging. Okay, I'm going to need a little more of these and a little less of those barrels to get this consistent flavor that has... As opposed to when you're doing single barrel, that's what you're celebrating the individual flavor notes in those barrels. So you don't have to be consistent. Um, and then you put too much hot sauce on your taco the night before and blow an entire batch of whiskey to Right. I mean, those guys take their palates very, very seriously. Uh, they definitely don't do that the night before they have a, a, a real serious <laughs> yeah. panel. Um, you know, But they do do a lot of drinking. I mean, you have to, and you have to develop a certain tolerance to it. You're, you're so... Uh... Right. Also, like I don't see like a seventy-nine-year-old guy that's been doing that for fifty-five years in there with like a MacBook Pro. Like he's no. like a number two pencil no. on a piece of like. <laughs> yeah, he's got paper. a little yeah. pencil nub, yeah, yeah. like worn down to the like nub, <laughs> and he's got his little like leather you know book that he carries in his back pocket next to his comb. <laughs> right. And his palm olive salve. I think. Yeah. I think ours might be a little more automated. Yeah, we'll have a, we'll have a better system. <laughs> we'll probably also have that too. Though. Yeah. Yeah. Literally, Jeremy's holding a number two pencil. <laughs> so anyway, I hope that answers that question. Yes, they do move the barrels around. Um, and uh, so that was the first part of the Mr. Feedback. So we're done. Um, no, you know, he recorded <laughs> us. He recorded a special little segment. Um, and, and it's, and, you You're, know. Why are you looking at me? Well, because it's primarily for you, Joss. It's primarily for you. Let's give it a listen. Uh, no. Gentlemen, a very belated Welcome back. 
I was genuinely happy for the return of the podcast and can honestly say I've learned a few things over the past 18 episodes. Great guests, great topics, great conversations, still a great hosting trio with Jeremy leading the way, Hatch providing research and color commentary, and Josh infuriating me every step of the way by still being afraid of life and knowing nothing about anything. That being said, please do not let that glowing praise lead you to believe that you're not still blowing it a lot. Now, I don't have a lot of free time these days, and therefore I've not had a chance to record one of these. Otherwise, I would have let you know a while ago that it's lychee, not lychee, and mayoral, not mayoral, for instance. But like I just said, I haven't had the time. However, Last week in episode 18, when two of you butchered Simpsons references in succession, well, that was it for me. So here we go. Let's start with this. Joss, when you're going to throw in a little quip that you know is incorrect just to be funny, at least get that thing right. Uh, Cantor oil. What is cantor oil? I assume you were going for castor oil. Moving on. Jerry, I think we're all familiar with quinine. Okay, you know what quinine is? No, I'm kidding. I've never heard of that in my life. Nobody was surprised by this, Joss. Now we come to this. It's like like Homer Simpson once said, alcohol, the cure and reason for all of life's problems. (laughs) To your credit, you knew you got it wrong. But still, how dare you butcher it so badly? Here's the real quote. To alcohol, the cause of and solution to all of life's problems. I wouldn't uh, go to David Groening or yeah. Matt Groening for that. But. David Groening, huh? Well, at least you corrected yourself, but you still got it wrong. It's Matt Groening, not Matt Groening. Take a Geiger counter with you on a plane. It goes fucking crazy when you're at altitude. That is true. But the way you phrased it, your listeners may be freaked out. The dose of radiation received at altitude on a typical commercial flight are well below any levels that have been shown to cause cancer or any other similar damage. Now he's he's an informed You're going to get informed. Right. In this day and age, I'd say that's debatable. But in your case, Joss, I'd say it's a non-starter. How exactly are you being informed by a nearly 40-year-old episode of M.A.S.H. And finally, 45 minutes into the episode, the vast majority of which was about quinine. Um, quinine? And Joss still can't pronounce it. And that's where I'm going to end it this week. Thanks, guys. Why doesn't he come on the fucking podcast and do better? It's like hindsight's 2020. I don't know know quinine for crap. No, but to his point, we did have episode 21 tonight on a show where we primarily talk about distilling, and you didn't know what a pot still was. So, I, Well, I mean, I was obviously kidding. You were vamping for the, for yeah. the, for the it audience. Yeah, just a little banter. Boy, how about that intro? I'm the worst? He loves us, clearly. We're doing a no, great no, job. I, I think he said he likes Jeremy leading the way. But he, Ryan giving Google insight and color commentary, but and I am the worst at everything. But he did say it was a good trio. See, so the the overall trio was nice. You're part of the trio, you're Joss. You're just the last of the three. 
Listen, I'm third. My I get the last billing all the time, so I, I that's my knockdown. You know, I don't know what to feel about this. I'm a little uh, hurt. You know, I think it was nice that he participated. It's been a long time since we heard from Mr. Feedback. No, I wonder why. He's busy. Well, he cares about you, and he he cares enough to let you know how he felt, and he, so that's that's nice. Cares. He he wants you to be better. He's. Hoping you're uh, for I your benefit, why, not for him. I don't know why him. this even made the, the oh. show. This and it's is, not that he thinks that you're terrible. It's that he's infuriated by your lack of interest, desire, or knowledge about anything <laughs> or for or with anything. <laughs> well, uh, 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 oh, when you the, say it that way. Yeah. Well, uh, please. When he, he's talking about I, TV's not informative. No, he said MASH is informative? I mean, sure, if you want to learn how to get somebody off of morphine back in the, like, post, you know, I watched Korean to- War. I literally watched today how to defuse a CIA bomb. Nice. Thanks to MASH. You know that if you, uh, if you, you know, pour your own concrete operating room at floor, right. it gets less staph infection. He can't go there If with you MASH. cross-dress, they're still going to keep you in the fucking Marines. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, that's what I learned by no, watching. He's not. Match. He's not crazy. Yeah, he's faking it. Yeah, you're you're not that crazy, Clinger. All right, thank you very much, Mr. Feedback, for keeping us in line and letting us know what you love and hate about us. We will continue to try to up our game and be better for you. All right, what do you think about that, John? There you go. Hey, man, it's great to have you back. Thanks for joining us again. I know you're a busy dude. Man, it is so great to be here. I am never too busy to come hang out with you guys. The Nashville music grind is is real. And I and it, ramping up for the holidays. So what's that looking like out there? So it's a funny duality here because you know, you think of like all of the people that all the the artists you know and love in the uh, in in the in whatever genre of music you listen to. We're, they're all putting out Christmas songs. They're all trying to do something festive for the holiday season. If it's not Christmas, whatever your flavor is. Um, but the flip side of that is that the actual music industry in Nashville, it's the holiday season. About halfway through November, everyone leaves. The entire place shuts down. Uh, everybody, everybody starts thinking about Thanksgiving, and they don't come back till after New Year's. Uh, so while, so it's funny you have everybody like at home listening to at home uh, 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 critiquing and listening to all the stuff that they put together for Christmas three months earlier. I mean, we were recording Christmas records in August uh, to get stuff to you know to get stuff through the machine and get it put out on time. Um, but yeah, it's 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 really fun. So kind it's, of a it's ghost a really, town right now. Uh, yeah, yeah, especially just all, like, uh, uh, m- my wife Sarah works in, in publishing here, and it's just, everything has just been really, really calm and quiet since about uh, a couple couple weeks before Thanksgiving. I mean, it's kind of a commuter town in general, right? I mean, there's a lot of professional musicians going and coming. I mean, you got your, I mean, I guess we talked about this last time. I keep wanting to make Nashville just a music town, and I keep forgetting that there's a lot of other industry going on there as well. Um, yeah, you know, for as much as we, for as much as we get called Music City, because there is that huge scene here, it is a tiny, tiny fraction of the of the population in the GDP. It's 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 an it's a normal Southern U.S. city. Why why do people leave? 
Why do people leave Nashville? Well, right now, no one leaves Nashville. Everyone is moving here, especially from Ural's area. We have like uh, uh, just tons of people from L.A. coming yeah. in every day. I know two people that have moved there in the last three months. People cannot get out of California fast enough right now. Yeah. They're leaving in droves, and everybody else is receiving it. Colorado, Texas, yeah. Idaho, yeah. Montana, Wyoming. Yeah. I mean, people yeah, are Idaho's getting killed right now. moving out of California for whatever, you know, for multiple reasons, and I don't really want to get in. That's not this show. <laughs> Uh, but it's happening. <laughs> it's happening for sure. Um, yeah, yeah, definitely. But as far how's what's the weather looking like? I mean, is it is it starting to feel a lot like Christmas out there? I mean, is uh, what's the, does I it mean, snow in Nashville? So I was gonna I was gonna say you guys are in Southern California. What does feel a lot like Christmas mean? That's that's a that's well, rather, you know, rather subjective. Anything under seventy five degrees starts to feel kind of festive out here. <laughs> right, <laughs> being dark at five thirty. Yeah. That's the real killer, uh, uh, Hatch, and we're on. Uh, we are just barely inside Central Time, and so it is like as soon as the as soon as the time changes, it's dark at four fifteen. Yeah, I here. hate it's that. Awful. Yeah, it's just really silly. Um, uh, but yeah, the weather's been uh, the weather's been really really nice. Uh, it, it gets cold here some. It's been down. It gets down in the twenties and thirties at night, but it's usually in the forties or fifties during the day. There are obviously uh, aberrances to that, as there are with anywhere. Uh, but no, it's uh, uh, now. Now, you know, I'm from West Virginia. I'm from the cold, cold mountains, and so it can't get cold enough for me. But the the natives around here get very restless when it gets below sixty. I mean, do you get snow on the ground in Nashville proper? Snow on the ground, yes. Snow on the ground that would cause a disruption or need, you know, s uh, civil services to take care of it, not very frequently. And when it does happen, oh my lord, does this town shut down? Yeah. What if it snowed here? Well, I mean, it's happened. People would like very rarely, but yeah, it's... lose their mind. You guys would explode. Yeah. We'd explode. It gets like there's like Santa Ana winds here, and people don't know what to do. Well, uh, <laughs> Mr. Feedback uh, lived in Nashville for a while, and True, I went out. I went out there and visited him out there, and and it was snow on the ground, um, snow piled up. Again, it, not it, that much. It could. It'll yeah. anything under f seventy degrees looks arctic to us. Or yeah, snow. yeah, no, it definitely gets here. The first winter that I was here, it snowed a ton from like 2009, 2010, that winter. It was, we would get bouts of four and six inches and it, it, it really felt, it really felt just like home. It was like the winter followed me down here from the mountains. Yeah, that's, that's um, a real winter, four, six inches of snow. Yeah, that's proper. I mean, that's, that's shut down the roads back home in West Virginia, uh, uh, especially if it's cold enough that, that the salt doesn't work anymore. Uh, John, I, I want to go back a second. You used the word aberrant. That's very. I that's did. Very impressive. I don't hear. I know. I'm. I don't hear that I word am very often. A bass often. player. Are you a word slayer? Well, I'm a songwriter, so I suppose by uh, by default I kind of have to be. But uh, I'm a pop songwriter, so I mean we try not to get too deep. It's got to be accessible. N not much rhymes with aberrant. Joss is impressed Abstinence. by anything multisyllabic. <laughs> Anti-disestablishmentarianism? Boom. I mean, he literally just came out the chair. <laughs> yeah, I need a moment. Nemano <laughs> ultra microscopic silico volcano caniasis? Wow. Expialidocious. Yeah, it is. <laughs> <laughs> What a great segue into music, Josh. <laughs> I like when you just start right. spitting the show tunes. 
Pass me the um, the will it the will, will it make it through the podcast? <laughs> That's really the question. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, holidays, holiday music, John. I know that you just happened to uh, end uh, a little. Uh, you were working on a, a holiday record for Jess Chakoy. Um, who it, so I had never heard of her before. So when I came out to your record release party, I saw her open for you and I saw her entire set singer songwriter, um, young. How, how old is this girl? I think she just turned 26 or 27. Okay. Okay. So not, not too awfully young. She's, she's a real person at this point. She can vote. She can carry a gun. She can drink. She's, um, but anyway, I was impressed and, um, and I know she just cut uh, a holiday album that you uh, that you produced. Um, so tell me a little bit about that process and wearing that the producer hat because you know I know that you are a, a, an avid musician uh, and a uh, an accomplished musician uh, of your own right. And the last time we had on, had you on the show, we talked about that, talked about kind of your story arc, and played some of of your tunes um, and talked about you know kind of your life as a musician but this time I'd like to talk a little bit about wearing the hat of a producer um and I knowing your story a little bit um I know that you you uh, have always kind of dabbled in it um in fact didn't you go to school for engineering musical engineering or something at some point before you became a music theory major I did. Um, in the fall of 2001, uh, I spent a couple of months at a really neat little uh, recording school. It's literally a recording engineering, audio engineering school uh, in South Central Ohio called the Recording Workshop. And it's, a, it's, really a, it's, it's really neat, and you can't find these kind of programs a lot that are so short. It was, I think I was there for two months total, and I, you know, there was a, uh, a one main course and a couple of one or two week supplemental courses. It was real crash course stuff. But like fully uh, immersive. I mean, they've got you on the equipment. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. You're in the studios. They be, they spend a couple of days talking about signal flow and how everything works, you know, the basics of the of the, of the the topography of the studio, and then they throw you in there and they stop you if you're going to burn something up. That's awesome. Yeah, it was a really it was a really good, really immersive experience, and especially for you know for a, a a kid. I was eighteen, nineteen years old when I was there. Is that right? No, I was twenty years old when I was there. I can do math. Um, it was really cool for just a kid from coming from small town West Virginia, not really knowing uh, you know, seeing pictures of recording studios and looking up uh, your favorite bands and all that stuff and the things they're doing and thinking, oh, that's so cool, that's unattainable. And then here you are, twenty years old, you're at the helm, you're running the rig, and so it's a really amazing experience. Yeah. And obviously, uh, in your head, you already had it that you know um, that that might be the direction you wanted to go. That you you know possibly being uh, in a band or uh, you know, doing that might not be the music career that you are after, but maybe the recording side was something. Uh, you know, obviously, at a very at the very beginning when you were exploring, um, you know, music education, you were drawn to that program. Um, so you must have been thinking ahead, thinking you know that that uh, that that was something that you you might be able to get into vocationally because you know I played the drums and sang and was in a band in high school. But I didn't come out of high school thinking I'm going to go to engineering school. 
you know, because it, that wasn't that wasn't the arc for me. That wasn't the story for me. I, I wasn't going to pursue that. I was going to be a drummer. Or I was going to be in a band or whatever, but I was never going to sure, be sure. a studio guy. Um, so you were obviously already kind of flirting with that idea uh, at the beginning of your, you know, kind of educational track. Yeah, it, you know, it's a niche thing. Uh, it's not for everybody because I, I feel like a lot of musicians – and I'm no I'm no exception to this. I need that that live performance exposure and that feedback from the crowd and that just amazing feeling of 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 working on something and performing it live and having that having that back and forth experience. But the studio's a different animal. It's it, it's it's oddly more scientific but all the while being a lot more creative because you're not just playing a song. You're not just giving a performance. You're not just, it's not just a, an event that's happening at this one moment in time that will then be passed and you everybody moves on and goes to something else. You are in there to create something that ne that's going, that hopefully is going to last. Well, I mean, and so you, yeah, I mean, musicians have the songs and they have a sound, but truly the, 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 um, the engineer and the studio really creates the sound, and that's why people work with the same you know producer and the same engineer time and time again. Yeah. Is because that person gets them that sound. Abbey Road was yeah, famous for their sound. Nobody else could get that sound. You know, uh, yeah. uh, uh, Motown. You know the, what they had going on at uh, what's the their studio? The studio Motown, the little. Hitsville, USA. Yeah, Hitsville. Baby. I mean, there was they had a they had a a sound. Um, in fact, uh, you know, Abbey Road had uh, you know um, had tube compressors developed just for them, so that they were literally the only studio that even could have that sound. Um, and so, there's a lot to be said for the creation of a, a, a band's overall sound that we identify as, oh, that's Sublime, that's the Beastie Boys, that's the Beatles. Um, a lot of that's their their engineer. And oh, absolutely. And you know, they you you make the record, and then. Uh, oftentimes, uh, is so often the case, you make the record with that engineer or that producer or that engineer slash producer. That line's getting blurred a lot more uh, in in recent years with the advent of uh, computers and you know, home recording and uh, gear being so accessible. But you make the record and then you go to your band, uh, you go to your performers and you go to the your rehearsals and you figure out how to make it sound like that live. Uh, so that your so that your product lines your live product sort of lines up with what your what your album sounds like. So there's this continuity and like you're talking about this sound. Right. If somebody buys your album and then they show up to your concert and you sound nothing like that, that's gonna yeah, piss off your consumer, that? right? And you're not gonna sell any more. Right. Records. right. Gonna, it's a lie. They don't sound like that. That's right. Two two things for you. One, it has learning that side of the of the scene, if you will, right? Running the board and becoming good at producing and engineering that has to make you one a better musician i would imagine and two do you you produce and engineer your own music yourself right i do uh and yes it absolutely it, it forces you to look at everything under a microscope be it uh, uh, your guitars, uh, whether you you know your instruments if they're set up and and functioning properly uh your people if they are 
well, set up and functioning properly, if your fucking drummer's caffeinated enough and your bass player's not too hungover, uh, uh, you know, th those, those sort of things, you have to look at absolutely every detail under a microscope while still being able to step back, see the big picture, and sort of steer the ship. Uh, which is why I think, and I, I sort of wanted to, to highlight this distinction a little bit between producer and engineer, because it's it's a it's a a double hat. So, to, uh, for a lack of another word of another way of saying it, it was especially in the older days when the studios were so much more complicated and harder to run. Uh, you know, you needed scientists in there to manipulate all this gear and to make to keep it to keep the ship running. Then you had your producer who was the guy who's in charge of the band, making sure the artist is happy, taking care of the administrative stuff, the budget and all that stuff. So let me ask you this, John, when you're producing your own stuff. Um, can you be too close to the project? Sometimes you're so close that you, you can't see the trees for the forest kind of a thing. Um, and when, especially when you're working on your own project, um, sometimes it helps to have those other ears on your project to give you the, the, you know, the subjectivity or objectivity or whatever. Um, I mean, I feel like I'm too close to every single project of my own that I work on. Yeah, absolutely. That's gotta be, uh, it's. It's a bear. It's 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 real. It's real hard to it's real hard to get over. the The biggest thing for for me personally, and that's really the only thing I can speak to in that uh, in that uh, vein. The biggest thing is getting over uh, self confidence issues. Come in there, you start doubting what you did. Like, oh, is that good enough? Is that what I really wanted it to be? Because when you have unlimited control, you have unlimited options, and so you never you know the, you can you can keep making changes or, uh, until the cows come home. Do you have a uh... A 1A? I mean, do you have a, a, a man or woman that you work with that you trust to, that could give you some critique and some advice? You know, I do. Okay. I do. I absolutely do. Uh, uh, he's one of my best friends. Uh, he is the uh, he is in any band that I put together whenever I can get him. Uh, he's one of the finest musicians I know. And actually, I want to get him. I'm going to link you guys up with him so he can come on here and uh, and spill a little of his of his hillbilly wisdom. It's my my buddy Jimmy Likens. Uh, he is not afraid to calmly and professionally tell me when it sucks. You need those kind of people in your life. Oh man, you gotta have it. You gotta have it. I spent. See, this is a, a another thing about sort of my journey. I spent a lot of time producing only by myself, sort of in the house, you know, or in my own in my in my home studio here. Uh, I had a lot to learn. Blah blah blah. Yada yada. But. I did not. I didn't have always have that outside perspective, and it uh, uh, it shows on a lot of those old recordings. So now talk about um, producing this this record with Jess. When you are working with somebody else, particularly someone young, kind of a new artist, um, how do you approach that differently than when you're working on your own stuff? Is it is it, can you since you have that kind of those degrees of separation, is it easier to be because you can be more objective? Uh, or absolutely. So do you, I mean, talk, talk, talk to me about that. The process of, of working with, with somebody and, and how do you help them to develop their sound, particularly again with like a new artist that might not know what their sound is. So there are, there are several flavors of producer. Um, and a lot of it comes down to, or it can come down to sort of which scene you're involved with. Uh, I find my, I live in Nashville, which is country music capital of the world. Um, and, and, and big label sort of big industry country music has its system and has its way of doing it. 
uh, here in Nashville that has kind of spilled over just by uh, just by sheer osmosis into the other musics that exist here in town, uh, alt country, uh, uh, indie rock, Americana, that sort of thing. I feel like a lot of the a lot of the overarching in, uh, industry trends in country have have spilled over into those genres. The cool thing about being a producer in Nashville, and this isn't necessarily the way it goes in New York or L.A. or other big music centers, the producer in Nashville is really a casting director. Um, because so much, so much about the music requires that there be a really slamming, really good band in the room making the song all at once. You know, drums, bass, guitar, keyboard player, horn section, strings, whatever. We try to do as, or at least I like to, and I think that's the overarching trend in the scene when we're make when we try to make our best music, is we. There's nothing better, and this goes back to your earlier point about you know uh, involving other people's ears. There's nothing better than getting the right group of people together for a spe- for a certain artist or for a certain song or a certain vibe and just saying okay guys girls go do you know you just do you know when it's perfect in your you know I, I know as a artist you never feel anything's perfect so let me try again do, sure. do you ever you know what makes you say cut for the last time like that's a wrap you know, because it, it, like you said, there's so many layers that go into a song and so many edits. I'm assuming I know literally nothing about it, but it's got to be a arduous. Uh, I said arduous. See? Wow. It's got to be a, a very difficult time. Uh, it takes a lot of time. Right. So, again, like when it, what makes you say, all right, guys, that is a wrap. Especially when you're so you working kn- on your own, right? You're working on your own, and, then, and how do you know when your song's done? When you, when can you let yourself walk away? So I'll answer both of those questions. For working with someone else, there is a feeling, and and you know, it comes down a lot for me to knowing the players. Uh, like this Jess record we just did, uh, uh, Green and Gold, available on Spotify, Apple Music, wherever you get your tunes. Jess Jacoy, Green and Gold, go check it out. It's wonderful. Uh, she's a lovely and talented singer-songwriter. We're going to have to hear it here in a uh, sec. Oh, yeah, we're definitely going to have to hear it. Um, so when you're working on somebody else's record, it's all about, at least for me, it's all about making sure you've got the right people in there. Like, I, when we got done with the Green and Gold session, uh, you know, we spent, a, we spent a whole day on one song. We so you're up. the director, basically, for this. You put together the musicians for that. You're not the one playing all the instruments. You No, you, no, no. You put together a, a band for her. and Yeah. Okay. I, I mean, I could have built her a track here at the house, but that's going to sound like I built her a track. Right. It'll sound good, and maybe not everybody would have an issue with right. that. Maybe most people that hear it would be like, I don't know, it's a cool song. It sounds great, man. But, you know, we, we strive for that human connection. And uh, I've been working with uh, uh, an engineer and a, uh, a drummer studio owner here in town a little bit who just are they're a really great team. And uh, I, so I knew I wanted to work in their studio with them. I brought in Jimmy, my my musical one A, uh, uh, to be the bass player because that's his, his primary axe is is bass uh, bass guitar, and he's just the, the best bass player I know, along with best musician. Um, but I brought him in, and I brought a really good friend of mine in, uh, who's a steel guitar player who has a has a, a a feel for the sort of the sort of style of music that Jess is going for. That's what I was gonna say. Is you know if 
you could have the computer do the drums and half the music these days, or or you could do all the tracks, but if you do all the tracks, it's going to sound like one person's kind of vision of that song, or it's going to be your groove. When you have a That's bunch right. of different people involved, everybody's inputting a little bit of their groove, and now we got some flavor. Yeah, and so, you know, the tendency is uh, on that groove thing, if I and and there are some don't get me wrong there are some guys and girls in this town that can make a record all by themselves that sound like it was done by a full band that's, that's a talent just in and of that, itself they've got it absolutely is they've got that much experience first of all they've played in full bands and so they've studied all the other roles and and seen how they interact but the the biggest problem for producing a track all by yourself is staying out of your own way especially in a genre of music where there are where there's improvisation involved you know there's little licks here and there on different instruments uh it's really hard to not uh, cuz you know we as musicians we kind of i think the same way on guitar as i do on keyboard a little bit and vice versa Okay, so anyway, back to the back to Joss's question. So you did pro you produced the whole band for your, her. You, you're working right. on the track. How do you know when to, to hit cut and when to walk away? So that was the, the uh, you you got me back on track there. I know when it's done, when I can read the guys and girls in the band, and they're they don't have to say anything because words don't work with expressing that kind of thing. I can see it on their faces and in their body language when it was the one. That when was it was the one. when it was when we're or not even when it's the one when we're starting to get there. You know, you uh, there's the I feel like there's a lot of thinking about uh, making music and the music industry in general that the, general that there's like this moment, this break, this thing that happens. That's ah, oh, that was it. It's it's softer than that. It's more subtle than that. You start to feel you start to feel or this less is the uneasy. one before you start to the feel one. Relax. Oh yeah, that, that's a big phrase that I, I I tend to stay away from. But hey guys, we're one away. Uh -huh. We're one take that away. That is a thing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I try I try to stay away from saying that, and I try to stay away from saying okay one more time because it's never going to be one more time. It's always going to be. And three. then how about walking uh, away from your own project when you don't when you don't have a groove and you're not picking up off of everybody else's vibe how do you know like stop messing with it enough is enough walk put it down walk away when i figure that out i will okay. let you know right. <laughs> no i was gonna say for my own stuff i tend to I, I for the longest time i had to have you know full creative control because i'm an artist and i'm in command or whatever and then i just realized that you have to have somebody else that is in charge that has final cut to a certain degree you know i have to have somebody there to be like no no no, no. you're up in your head stop don't don't worry about that it sounds great uh, we can fix these three things later blah 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 yada yada move on uh question you've uh, you've had experience with both being in a a full-time band and being in the studio with um studio musicians what what's the different dynamic putting together a song with people who are just meeting each other sometimes for the first time and people who have been in a band together for eight years you know, I think that's a that's a really good question, and and it kind of varies like genre to genre and scene to scene. Uh, in country music, uh, a lot of the touring bands that you see, like let's say somebody who's an artist, Luke Bryan or uh, uh, anyway Blake Shelton, they've got a band behind them. They're most likely that guy's regular players, but. The touring scene is almost as uh, almost has a turnover rate like the studio scene. There's there's guys who that's what they do. They know they know how to really accurate accurately recreate the sound of these records out in major stadiums or you know are in venues. 
and then vice on the other side of that there's there are guys who really understand how the how it's how it's uh, how the fabric is woven in the studio and they don't there's not a lot of i don't think there's a lot of crossover between those two uh, well there's not a lot of people that can do both really well there's a lot of people that that are very uh, comfortable in the studio and on the stage but it's it's i feel like it's kind of different breeds of horse right so if a guy comes in or a girl comes in and she let's just say the bassist right and they've never you've never worked with this person before do they have as much input in the song can they say like no can we stop i th- i think we should go this direction or how does that work with professional musicians is there everyone still get an equal say if it's like studio musicians or is it more like hey this is my show generally no yeah generally no your your producer and your artist are going to have the the final say sure. when it comes to uh that sort of thing and now don't get me wrong i as a producer I hire people that I want their opinion. I hire people that I want to be active members in these creations because I I hire them because I know the I know their style. I know how uh, how they uh, I know their personality, how they react, and how they uh, treat other people and all that. But most importantly, I know how, what they're going to ask and how they're going to make things, how they're going to uh, cause the session to go, how they how they're going to affect its outcome. Uh, and that's a, that's a big that's a really big part of the producer thing is knowing again it's 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 all about knowing the people that you're bringing into the room uh, to a certain degree. Now you're asking about people that have never been there before. No, they're not going to get as much of a say because and they know that you know when I go into a session and I that I've been called for on guitar or bass or whatever and I don't really know a whole lot of the people, I'm going to keep pretty much quiet to myself and say yes, ma'am, no, ma'am. That's exactly what I was looking for. Yeah, thanks. Uh, it's cool to get a perspective of someone who's like in that scene, you know. Man, it is a, uh, it's it's a it's an it's a blessing and a curse. But at the end of the day, uh, I feel really lucky to be able to work with the people that I do and to be able to do what I do. Jeremy, it looks like his bottle is bigger than ours. Well, and and more empty. And more empty. Let me ask you this, John. Your star on the Hollywood. Uh, walk of fame do you want it to be a uh, musician or musical uh, producer i'm gonna disappoint you it's it's neither um i want it to be a, a stunt driver okay. oh well, all right nice well, didn't see that one coming yeah well played sir <laughs> um and, and talking about well played let's let's play this song so this is this is just jacoy uh produced by john cavendish and the uh, what what do you call your studio? Gramercy Acres? Well, <laughs> Gramercy Acres. Uh, no. So this was produced <laughs> no. by... No, that's where my grandma's by, uh, buried. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so I, I helped Jess produce this. Uh, she's actually a, a co-producer on the, uh, uh, on the record. Let me see if I can pull it up here for you guys. Um, she is a co-producer on the record because she wants to. She wanted to. You know, she's made a, a several uh, a long form and short form records, uh, and, and put out a bunch of singles that she used other producers for who kind of ran the whole thing. Uh, and she, you know, she turned the reins over to them, and so she's starting to get some experience under her belt. And she wanted to have a little bit more, a little bit more say in this one. Uh, and so I sort of helped her get everything together. We produced this at uh, at a place here in town called the Cabin Studio. Uh, it's a brand new, really small uh, studio in East Nashville that's run by a guy named Matty Alger. 
uh, who is a multi-instrumentalist and a, a, a touring and session musician. He's one of those cats I was talking about that can absolutely do both. He's just, just a total musical freak of nature. Uh, and he is complimented on the engineering side by another musical freak of nature, uh, a guy named Brandon Bell, who actually, I think he has a Grammy or two. Uh, he's a really, really great dude uh, and just a, a champion listener. He really is. He really hears everything that's going on. So we produced that over there with the band that I had said earlier of me and Jimmy and CJ uh, and Maddie playing drums. Really nonchalant um, there. Just no, a Josh Grammy has a couple two. Grammys actually for his work. Yeah, on the, I, um, I kind of just blow by it as well. Yeah, he doesn't like to talk about it. <laughs> well, so here we go. Without further ado, I will present to you "Green and Gold" by Jess Jacoy. Dusting on the evergreens Winter's icy fingers hold the lake Spend my days in waiting Save the night time For dreaming of the day When it's Christmas in the city, they quit turning over profits for the tree. The people move in masses like they're all out on a winter promenade. Can throw my mattress down on the floor. Fall asleep beside the fire like time never told us to grow. If the reason for the season. Coming back to the ones you love Wrap me up in green and gold tonight I love waking up next to you Christmas morning
Beautiful song, man. Wow, that's fantastic. I mean, that's a that's hit. That's great. I, I got, that's not the first time I've heard it. I, I've had that on repeat at my house, setting like the holiday mood for the last week. I mean, that is an amazing song. Yeah, man. It's it's really, really... It's, it's, so, it's so hard to write a Christmas tune that doesn't feel like a Christmas tune, but still is. Right. And she just she just knocked it out of the park, man. It has all of those chilly, wintry feels and this imagery of the Pacific Northwest where she's from. And it, it just did, man, it just feels like coming home and, and, and finding somebody you haven't seen in a while or however you want to interpret that. It's, it, yeah, it's a great song. And, and the, the, the guys just, just knocked it out of the park with their tastefulness and restraint. And, the slide and, and guitar is awesome. Yeah, man, it's just awesome. I was just and, picturing and, the video for that, and well produced, one might say. Well, thank yes. you. I cast, I cast my people well. Yeah, no, it it does. I was picturing the video. It's got you can just picture the you know like the sleigh ride and the fur, snow, and the fi- snow on the fire window. Going. Yeah. There it is. There it's it a, is. It, and she's got that kind of voice. It's kind of wise beyond her years. You know, she's got an old soul sounding voice for sure. She she really does, man, and it's uh, she and she's just a she's a, a wonderful person. She's a pleasure to work with. Uh, she's she's she works tirelessly on her on her uh, on her singing and playing and writing, which is not always the case. You know, not everybody puts in the really puts in the the hard hours and the hard labor like she does. Uh, we just got done uh, just this weekend, Saturday and Sunday. We just cut a whole new. She's going to have an EP coming out, maybe first quarter next year, something like that. Uh, that we just cut with the same band in the same studio at the same Cats, and it's just totally. She sent me these work tapes of the songs that were just her singing and playing. They were wonderful, really cool songs, and you can kind of start to hear the arrangements in there. But uh, but man, that that same band of Maddie and CJ and Jimmy and I just we really got it. Really found something nice this weekend. So how long did that take, that. start to finish, to do that song? Just to give our listeners like the amount of effort that goes into making something that we good. showed. <laughs> sure, sure, absolutely. So I, uh, the night before, I, I'd heard it. Uh, uh, you know, she'd sent me the 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 tape of the of just her singing and playing it. Um, and uh, so the night before, I wrote out a chart for it uh, that uh, that I in a way that I knew the all the other players could read, uh, so we'd have a reference. And then we show up to the studio about nine thirty or ten o'clock in the morning and uh, get set up. We were done. I think we were done actually tracking and recording the 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 instruments before all of the mixing and stuff happened afterwards because we recorded and mixed this one in one day. Um, uh, so there, that's that. There's your ultimate answer. It was one day, one studio session day, which was about oh ten o'clock a.m. to six p.m. with a little lunch break. I can't do two loads of laundry in one day. Right. <laughs> like the way you put that together in a day is unreal. Absolutely. Well, uh, you know there were seven of us, and so it it, it it does take a village to 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 get it done like that. Uh, um, uh, but I think we were what done. Just... We didn't have a lot. We didn't have a lot of takes on that. We were, I think three or four hours, and we were we were really we'd really found something that we could work so with. So if somebody wants to find that, Jess Jacoy, J O C O Y, Jess Jacoy Music 
uh, on uh, Facebook and Instagram. And Instagram. Yeah. Um, and yeah, she's and on Spotify. Apple Music, all of your streaming services, you can find it anywhere. And uh, uh, check out her website. I think it's just JessJacoy.com or it's JessJacoy Music. She's got CDs and tapes and T-shirts and all that stuff for sale. Phenomenal uh, so young artist. It. Definitely look her up, support her. Um, she's got a lot of uh, great music and apparently some, some new stuff getting ready to come out. A la our good be buddy John, John Cavendish. Absolutely. So how about you? Uh, what do you got for us? I know you've been working so, on so you 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 got a podcast something that you guys have started up out there. Tell me about what's what that's all about. Yeah, so um, uh, I was speaking of uh, my friend Jimmy. Uh, he keeps coming up. Uh, he's a, he's a, he's a very good buddy of mine. Uh, my friend Jimmy and uh, other two friends Adam and Steve. Um, uh, Steve has a uh, I can't disclose his last name because he's YouTube famous or something like that. I don't know. Uh, but he's uh, uh, we've started a YouTube show uh, on you can you can go find it on Junk Drummer TV, the YouTube channel. Uh, and our show it's a weekly just us musing about different bullshit called Drunk Uncle Radio. And uh, so that's Drunk we've been gearing Uncle up radio. for Radio. That's correct. Drunk Uncle Radio on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, face tweets, uh, wherever you look for things that are on the internet. Drunk Uncle Radio. <laughs> Um, so we have been gearing up for our Christmas episode, which we're going to do a deep dive on Bing Crosby and, uh, his musical legacy and the effects that he had, uh, on the, t uh, technological side of the recording industry, which is actually pretty amazing. Uh, Bing Crosby is responsible for a lot of early advances in recording technology in the thirties and forties. Um, so that's, that's our new thing. And so we've been gearing up for that episode and, uh, we've got a little version of the famous Chuck Berry song. Uh, run, run, Rudolph! Uh, a burning, a burning blues version of the original classic, and uh, so uh, if you guys are itching for a little rock and roll in your face, we could take a listen to that right I'm now. Itchy. Let's pull that up. I want to scratch it.
Awesome. So your your lead vocals on that lead guitar, lead guitar, lead vocals, um, playing some bass and organ on there too. We're getting we're in the process of working this one up for the Drunk Uncle Radio podcast. Uh, but this version you will only hear right here on the Jeremy Webisodes podcast because Jimmy and I are going to get together on Friday and change everything about it. The only thing on there that's not me is the drum set player, our our good friend Steve, who has the Junk Trummer TV YouTube channel. Uh, he recorded those drums in Huntington, West Virginia, in a little recording studio there th- to a track that I had provided him, and we're going to bring those back down here, and Jimmy and Adam and I are going to get together and build all the rest of the track uh, between the three of us. So, so it's, it's safe to say track. this is the Jeremy Webisodes exclusive version. This is the Jeremy Webisodes exclusive version of John Cavendish playing Chuck Berry's Run Run I'm in. right here. On the Jeremy Webisodes Coming podcast. Coming at you live. Ladies and gentlemen, wow. Ryan Hatch. Wow, Ryan, Ryan Hatch, Hatch just woke here. up. I didn't want to, because you're not supposed to poke someone when they're snoring, like when their wow. sleep apnea is right. kicking in like that, because they might choke on their tongue. So I just kind of let him do his thing over there, but I'm glad you're back. It's good to see it's you, nice Ryan. To see oh, thank you. You. Just in time to say goodbye to John. We're Literally, to his beard oh, hey, grew John's like here. three inches since you've last spoken. <laughs> I, uh, John, I've wanted to like take my wife on, a, uh, on the dance floor and just do like an old 50s kind of dance to that, man. That was fun. It definitely Get your sock hop on, man. Get sock your sock hop. hop on. Totally. So that's cool. So once again, they, they uh, people, the people out there should find uh, the Drunk Uncle Radio Show. Um, Drunk Uncle Radio on YouTube on Junk Drummer TV. Junk that is the channel Drummer. Junk Drummer TV. You can Junk. find it there. And then how about drummer. just you and, and, and all the things? Because I know you just came out uh, uh, with, a, with a new album or just released a new album. Put a new single out in uh, the middle of... That's right. Since we last talked, I have put a new single out. So I will give myself the, uh, the shameless uh, uh, professional Do plug it. here. My name is John Cavendish. I am a musician, artist, producer, engineer, whatever hat I happen to be wearing that day, based out of Nashville, Tennessee. Um, and you can find me on the internet. You can find me on Facebook at uh, facebook.com slash jcav with two Vs. Uh, you can find me on Instagram at John Cavendish. Uh, you can find me on Twitter. No, you can't find me on Twitter. I'm not on Twitter. Um, Is that John with on... or without the H? 
That is without the See, H. I think you need I will, to make that I will, point. I will give it long form for you. It is J-O-N-C-A-V-E-N-D-I-S-H. And you can find me on Apple Music, Spotify, also wherever you get any of your, wherever you get your streaming music, you can look up John Cavendish. I have a single that came out this past early, no, I guess November 13th, the called Viola, My Old Friend. Uh, it is a, uh, it's a, a lovely tune that's a big dose of fall for everybody who is cooped up indoors this season. Definitely and, check it out. Uh, it's a great album. John's got a, a great voice. He's an amazingly talented uh, musician, and I am stoked to be able to call him my friend. So thank you very well, much for being here, my bro. Dude, awesome. Thank you. Thank you all so much for having me on again. Let's do this again soon, and call me back when you're going to have another episode on Willits, because, well, what can I it's say? It's yummy. I'm into That it. was good. Yeah, Will good it stuff. make it through the podcast? <laughs> it didn't really. Uh, no. I got to be quite honest. <laughs> we pretty much polished it. All right. I love you, my yeah. man. Happy holidays. Take care of you yourself. Thanks, brother. That was fantastic. Same again. to you all. Nice. Love you guys. Be safe. I'll talk to you Merry soon. Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas. Bye-bye. All right. Well, that's going to do it, ladies and gentlemen. That is a wrap on Webisode 21. Thank you very, very much for being here. We hope you are all out there staying safe, um, enjoying your holiday season, and we look forward to seeing you right here next week on the Jeremy Webisodes Podcast. <laughs> <laughs>